Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Now as Christians, we seek to follow the will of God. And that's why we highly prize the Bible and its message for us. And as Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's revelation to man, plenary and inspired. Plenary is a fancy word used to mean full or complete, and also inspired. And what does it mean for the Bible to be inspired? What is inspiration and how does inspiration work? Does inspiration mean the same thing when it comes to everything in the Bible? That's what we're going to explore and consider today. So what is inspiration? If you look in the dictionary, Webster says it's literally the process by which one draws air into the lungs. So every time you breathe in, you are inspiring, so to speak. The word we can see used in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God in many translations. But here in the English standard, it is all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And uh, the English standard has rendered it properly. The Greek word is theonoustos, literally God breathed. So scripture is breathed out by God. That's why we get the idea of the uh, English inspiration, that we, we uh, breathe in what God has breathed out. So how do we know what would be inspired, or God breathed? Well, here, Paul says it's Scripture. Now, we know that Jesus and the apostles consider the Old Testament to be inspired, because they quote from all but a few of its books, and even those books aren't quoted. That's not because they did not think they were inspired, they considered it part of the uh, groupings. Uh, one way we can see this is in Luke 24 when Jesus says that um, all the things written of me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms have reached their fulfillment. Uh, the law, the first five books, uh, the prophets are what we consider the historical books and the prophets. And the Psalms uh, can sometimes also be uh, not just for the Psalms but also for all the writings uh, that would go uh, wisdom literature in, in our modern parlance. In Second Peter chapter 1, uh, 19 through 21, Peter uh, declares that we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit be very clear about this, when he talks about private interpretation, he's not talking about the, the work of interpreting uh, what God has said. What he's saying here is that uh, the prophet Isaiah did not get up one day and say, you know what, I think this is probably what God would have said, and wrote it down as prophecy. You know, Peter says, no, they never did that. It wasn't his private interpretation. Isaiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets uh, were given messages by God, and then they communicated them. We can trust that the apostles are inspired because Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit in John 16, 12-13. And in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, we can see that they were given the Holy Spirit to go and proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. And uh, Peter, at the end of his second letter, commends the letters of Paul. Um, 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters where he speaks in them of these matters. In Second Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. And so we have every confidence that the Bible that we have, from Genesis to Revelation, is Scripture and is inspired of God. Okay, so inspiration is that God has breathed out the Scripture, and that the Scripture that's been breathed out is what we have preserved for us in the Bible. How does that inspiration come about? As we mentioned in 2 Peter 1 and verse 20, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, the men who were filled with the Holy Spirit were moved by the Spirit to write, or to speak, and then what they spoke was written down, and that is inspired scripture. And so it's true that the scriptures are physically written down by men, but the source, direction, and substance of that message comes from God. And what's interesting about that is that God uses this particular people involved in their particular style in order to communicate his message. Uh, the 66 books of the Bible do not sound exactly the same. There's a consistent message throughout, but you have different style. Uh, the Gospel of John is just as much a Gospel as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John sounds a lot different. There's a lot of different ways that the, the message is portrayed there. Uh, the style of Paul uh, sometimes changes among letters. Uh, he, he sounds different to the Romans than he does to the Galatians than he does to the Colossians, uh, let alone to when he writes to uh, Timothy and Titus. Uh, but now his style is very different from the style of James or John or Peter. And this is not a, a strike against inspiration, but a realization that God, in his manifold wisdom, has used different people, different personalities, different styles to proclaim the message. And each one of these people and what they've written prov uh, provides a, a richer, fuller uh, presentation of the message. And a lot of times we, we get things out of the different shading that each of them provides. Uh, some people want to take those nuances of difference and try to act like these are contradictions, when in fact they're just providing greater perspective, greater depth to the story of what God has accomplished uh, through his people. The important thing also to think about inspiration is at what stage uh, of the message uh, was the Bible inspired? And the reason that we have to have this conversation is because there have been some people who have decided to kind of keep moving the goalpost of inspiration in order to justify their doctrines, especially uh, those uh, who would believe in the inspiration of the translators of the King James Version. Or perhaps maybe not the King James Version, but of the edits and changes that would comprise what we call the Textus Receptus of, of Desiderius Erasmus, uh, was inspired by God. And really, there's no reason that we should accept such things. Uh, there's no indication uh, from the authors of those things they considered themselves inspired. Uh, no reason to believe that at all. Instead, uh, we have reason for confidence that what was inspired was the original authors writing the original manuscripts. So God commissioned these people to write in Israel and the apostles and their associates. Those documents which were written were inspired. And God then made provision to, pre to preserve that text throughout time. Although, uh, human error being what it is, there were some variants that crept in. And we can look at the Hebrew and Greek texts and uh, 
translations of those texts that are in our possession and analyze them and come to a text very very close to the original text and now our English <clears throat> what this means though is that our English translations which are good and certainly able to lead us to the truth are still translations by uninspired men and uh, therefore it is profitable at times to consider the original languages. It's, it's profitable to consider different translations and to not get hung up with one translation. Uh, there are a lot of people who feel the need to say, oh, no, this is the right and true translation. And that's something we don't see as an impetus, even in Scripture itself. Uh, we need to be careful about that, because it's, we shouldn't be put vaunting uh, the good, diligent work of men and make it in something, though, uh, that it's not. Uh, and there's a lot of nuances in the original languages that you just cannot communicate very effectively in translation. Uh, we can think about uh, the mentions of the word pornea, for instance, uh, normally translated uh, variously fornication, sexual immorality, immorality, uh, really means sexually deviant behavior. And you can go through a whole word study to understand why that is. Um, Splunknizomai, uh, which is to feel compassion, really a moving in the bowels, a kind of a that, that gut feeling inside of you. Uh, when you feel for somebody else deep within. This is not a problem in translation. We, we, we can use have compassion. We can talk about sexual behavior or sexual morality, but we need to kind of clarify what these terms mean. And that is why the word has always been exposited. The word has always been interpreted. The word has always been explained all the way from the time of Nehemiah uh, to the preaching of the apostles. And there's no problem in the, in the fact that that's the situation. We used to be on guard to make sure we're doing it properly and to handle these things in the way that uh, God would have us to handle them. And having said that, we should make it very clear that uh, we can use translations to come to the, uh, an understanding of the Word of God. That even if the translations are not inspired, it doesn't mean that now the message of God has been <clears throat> made so that most people cannot understand it. The New Testament authors most often in the New Testament are using a translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And quite frankly, a lot of times the Septuagint is not the greatest translation of the Old Testament. And yet they were able to use that translation anyway in order to communicate to the people the message of God. Uh, in fact, throughout the Bible, this has been something that a lot of people have missed. God did not inspire people to write in the most highfalutin nature of their language that was incomprehensible and above the people. No, he communicated to the people in language they understood. He communicated to the people of Israel in the Hebrew of their time, the Aramaic of their time. He communicated to the people of the ancient Mediterranean world in the first century in Koine Greek. He did not go use a good solid Attic Greek. He used Koine Greek, the common uh, Greek of the people. God's intention has only been for people to understand the message, and that is what drives the translation philosophy, uh, to get the message of God in a way that people can understand it, and that is consistent with God's purposes. So it is absolutely God's will for the Bible to be translated into English and for us to understand his message in English. We just need to keep the limitations of that endeavor in mind. So yes, God has inspired men to write in days of old and to present his message in Scripture. So this is how God has inspired men to speak. How are we to interpret the Scriptures and what is authoritative based upon our confidence that God has inspired Scripture? How do we understand inspiration in the texts? 
there are three main ways that inspiration works. First is the one that we're most familiar with. The idea that a statement is inspired of God and designed to present authoritative instruction from God. So, Jesus says, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, do not lust after a woman you commit adultery with her in your heart. Those are words that Jesus is saying. Jesus is the Son of God, is the Word made flesh. Those words are God-breathed. We are to hear those words. We are to understand that instruction, and we are just to follow it. Um, in the Old Covenant, Ten Commandments are the same thing. They were statements of God, just inspired of God. In fact, written with his finger on the tablets, written down, and the Israelites were expected to follow them. Or in Paul in Galatians 5, 19-23, hey, this is the work of the flesh, these are the fruit of the Spirit, do not do the works of the flesh, and manifest for the Spirit. We take that as acceptable, we take it at face value, we go and we try to live that way. With these statements, God said it, we are to do it, end of story. So that's one way of inspiration. But that's not the way inspiration works with everything in the Bible. Another way inspiration works is the statement is inspired of God, designed to present a true rendition of events that occurred. So this gets again to purpose. So there is some parts of Scripture that are very moral and exhortative. But there's also just telling of events. And that we are, by saying that the telling of events is inspired, we're saying this is what happened. We're not necessarily saying everything that happened was good. This is very important. Because uh, many times the author will provide indications uh, that God approves or disapproves of these things going on. And then we can, can go from there. So, for instance, in 1 Kings 16, 29-31, when the king's author introduces us to Ahab, we're told that he was more wicked than all the kings of Israel that came before him. Uh, we should I understand that when you read the narratives of Ahab, uh, most of the time God is not approving of his actions. Uh, now there are some times where you know, he does turn to God or God is using him to accomplish his purposes. Uh, but uh, when Ahab wants to glorify Baal, uh, we should not say, well the Bible now, it's inspired text, says we should glorify Baal. No. Yes, Ahab did that. Ahab was condemned for doing that. Uh, on the other hand, like in Luke 2.52 and Luke 3.22, Luke tells us Jesus grows in favor of God, that God is pleased with him. And so, hey, that's a historical reality, and we can say, okay, this helps us understand, yes, Jesus is somebody worth following, somebody worth, worth listening to. Uh, so there are times where we have that explicit moral judgment given by um, authors, and that helps. But there are some times, a lot of times actually, where there is no explicit comment justifying or condemning the behavior of somebody. We should not say, well, God hasn't told us that this person was wrong, therefore we should follow their example. An example, uh, Samson is a great example in Judges 16 and verse 1. Uh, Samson visits a harlot. Samson, you know, you can say, hey, in Judges 2, we see the judges getting worse and worse. Yeah, but in Hebrews 11, Samson's one of the hall of faith. So does that mean that that justified him visiting a harlot? No. Uh, it's telling a story. The part of that story, to you need to understand why uh, he happens to be in the town with the, with the harlot to understand why he's going to take the gate on his back. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the author is saying, yes, this was good, commendable behavior. Uh, we can see the rest of Scripture and see, no, this is something Samson should not have been doing. In Isaiah 39, 1-3, Hezekiah receives Babylonians, uh, Babylonian emissaries. 
You can probably denote in that story when, in fact, Isaiah will prophesy and say that, uh, oh, everything that you show these Babylonians, their descendants are going to come and take. And you can kind of say, well, God may not be the happiest with uh, Hezekiah for doing that. Though we're not ever told explicitly uh, that such a thing was something God was censuring. Uh, one of my favorite go-to examples is in Acts 19 and verse 28. Scripture records, Luke records, uh, that the people of Ephesus were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's in the Scriptures. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's written there in Luke chapter, I mean, Acts 19 and 28. Does that mean that Artemis of the Ephesians is great? No, because when you read that story in context, uh, Luke is talking about the riot that uh, Demetrius the Silversmith and others were... Uh, establishing against Paul and against the preaching of the gospel, and that this was a great cry that they were crawling out, attempting to cause great harm to G uh, Paul and his cause, and how they were thwarted in doing that. Uh, we should not say, well, it's in inspired scripture, therefore it's, it's something that is right and good. No, we have to understand what's going on in the context, and uh, Luke doesn't have to tell us that Artemis of the Ephesians is not great for us to understand in that story that he's not commending them for saying such a thing. Now the third form of inspiration is kind of complicated at times. And that there are statements inspired of God presented in a figurative poetic language. And you, the use of figurative or poetic language requires special mention because uh, people tend to go to extremes about it. On one hand, people will try to reduce it to a literalist meaning and then try to say, well, we have to follow the literal meaning of this because it's scripture. And other people will go to the other side where they basically try to say that, well, if we can make it a metaphor, then it's not real or since it's not literal. And if it's not real, we don't actually have to take it seriously. And neither of those are respecting how God has chosen to communicate to us. Um, there are lots of times where inspired men are going to use figurative poetic language um, in order to communicate emotion, used to communicate in a compelling way that grabs the hearer and really is much more visceral, much more, uh, much more profoundly able to be understood than just using actual uh, narrative exposition or literal exhortation. Uh, we can look at all kinds of scriptures and, and see how this happens. So uh, a common Old Testament example, Psalm 51.5. Uh, David says, I was, uh, basically I was born a sinner. That was the basic message of Psalm 51.5. Um, some people have tried to critique that on looking at the nuances of language, but uh, that's going the wrong direction. David is communicating that he, that I have been born a sinner. And so the question is, is David accurate in that assessment in his in his crying out in, in grief? Uh, we can look at many scriptures, Ezekiel eighteen four, Matthew eighteen one through four, children are innocent and the soul that sins dies on the basis of its sin. Um, Jesus says, Let the children come to me. The idea that that sin children are born unregenerate sinners is inconsistent with these messages. Can we understand what's going on? Yes, David feels like he's sinned from birth because of the experience that he's gone through. Um, so that's an accurate f representation of the feeling of David, even if it's not true in actual fact. Uh, Psalm 44, the sons of Korah cry out to Yahweh to wake up. Does, does that mean that 
God has authorized the fact that he sleeps sometimes? No. No, other passages talk about how he does not sleep. But the, the sons of Korah certainly feel as if God has fallen asleep because it's how they don't think that they're really being heard. Uh, these are given to us in Scripture to give voice to feelings that we have. And God, in his great love and care, is giving us an opportunity to give voice to those even if they are not actually accurate according to fact because the feeling is still very real. Uh, we could see... Um, does it mean it's not inspired? No, it's inspired. It's inspired to, to express that emotion, even if it's not actually true in fact. Uh, we see this, for instance, also in, like, Job. Job has a lot of things that he says. His friends say a lot of things. A lot of times it's easy to kind of cherry-pick statements out of Job when you're trying to make an argument about something. But at the very end of Job, uh, we're told that... Uh, Job is given reason to be humiliated before God. He spoke without understanding. And all the friends of Job did not speak rightly about God like Job did in Job 42. And so while we might be tempted to say, hey, there's all this stuff here that we, we like, well, the author of Job has recorded what Job and his friends said. That's true. That's, that's inspired as far as that goes. That doesn't mean that what they said was right. And so we need to be careful how we handle those kind of things. They certainly reflect the attitudes of the ancient Eastern world in trying to grapple with the problem of evil. And there's a whole lot of value and power in really digging into that. But just trying to take a surface meaning of that and going with it would be very dangerous. Uh, in the New Testament, we see this a lot as well. Revelation is the greatest example. And this is something important that we don't dismiss. A lot of people will try to say everything in Revelation and try to literalize it and try to say it's happening right now. On the other hand, a lot of people say in Revelation, well, since it's all metaphor, we can't really draw any conclusion from it. it we, we don't know any truth from it. And both of those are wrong. Uh, because, for instance, Jesus in John, Revelation 1 will say, uh, the seven candlesticks to the seven churches. So are they seven candlesticks? What's what John sees? God has given this vision to Jesus to give to John. John sees seven candlesticks in the vision. That's inspired. But Jesus also under gives a meaning. that They're really seven churches. So John doesn't say what he says. He means what he means. So yes, he sees candlesticks. We read candlesticks or lampstands. We're supposed to think churches. And that becomes a paradigm for the rest of the story, where we're going to see and hear a lot of things in the story. We're going to see images. We're going to see here numbers. We're going to have all of these phrases that are coming out of the Old Testament. We're not to understand the things he sees just on the level of what they see. We're supposed to see the reference. We're supposed to see the meaning and draw encouragement from that. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 8, Paul will do this with rhetorical devices sometimes. He'll talk about uh, his, op his opponents that the, are seducing the Corinthians. He calls them super apostles. Uh, are they really super apostles? No! They're not really super apostles. Uh, Paul's just kind of using uh, their own hyperbole of, of how they present themselves as the most pious uh, Jewish Christians and kind of turns it on them. Later in that very passage, he will also say, I robbed other churches to serve you. Did Paul literally rob churches? I mean, he said he robbed churches. He's inspired. It's an inspired text, right? He's using hyperbole. He's using a rhetorical device there. Uh, now, should we say because it's a rhetorical device that, you know, it has no meaning? No, he's, he's trying to persuade his audience to see something about him that what's been what he tried to do to show love and care and concern for them is now being used against him and so he's been hurt by that and he's trying to respond to really dig at them and get to their emotions um 
and inspired to do so. And so a lot of times we might think, well, it would be so much easier if the everybody just spoke straight. Well, do we understand things better than God? God has inspired men to communicate in these ways that humans absolutely communicate it. And there's power and there's a richness in a complexity there that we shouldn't just want to eliminate because it makes the job of interpretation a little bit more complicated. We need to instead respect that this is how God has told us his message. God has chosen to use these means to communicate his message. And in fact, a lot of those images in Revelation, some of the compelling images of the, of the parables, uh, some of the things the prophets say have proven far more memorable and far more convicting and, ch and have led to changes in behavior far more than just straight-laced, um, quote-unquote, literalistic uh, exhortations. And so, these are the main implications of inspiration. I hope we can see that just because we say a text inspired doesn't just mean we take the service meeting and say, all right, that's the way it is, we need to go do that. That, in fact, there's a very uh, multi-layered understanding of inspiration that we need to have. And when we look at a text, we need to really say, okay, yes, God has breathed this out, but to what end? And we can't just do that on a, you know, this book is going to follow this exact same pattern the whole time. No, we've got to look at each individual um, part of the message uh, down to even within uh, words or clauses uh, to see uh, what the apostle or what the prophet uh, or what the speaker is doing there and why it's there. So indeed, we've hopefully looked at inspiration and seen that inspiration means that God has breathed out his message to men and that men have written the message down and that message is authoritative. We have seen the implications of inspiration in, in various texts and to see how it's authoritative. Uh, whether it is authoritative in exhortation of what we're supposed to do, authoritative in telling us how, what things have happened, or uh, a, a very powerful means of communicating uh, to try to reach not only the head but also the heart. And so we do well to hold to the inspired word of God and to believe it and to live accordingly. We again thank you for joining us today. If you've been benefited by this, we encourage you to share it uh, with friends, family, and others on social media. Uh, if we can be of any assistance, like to talk more about these things, you'd like to have a Bible study or do a correspondence course or have a prayer request, please uh, reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. And please, if I can be of any service personally, reach out to me at my website, DeverboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, thank you. Have a great day.